How do we bridge divides? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Ben Klutze. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Ben Klutze. Ben is the Director of Academic Outreach and the Director of the Program on Pluralism and Civil Exchange at the Mercatus Centre at George Mason University. He facilitates outreach to faculty leaders and university centres to foster collaborations and knowledge sharing about building academic programs. He was also previously the Program Manager for the Financial Markets Working Group and the Program on Monetary Policy at Mercatus. Before Mercatus, he worked with the Institute of International Finance, where he analyzed international financial regulations. He received his MA in International Commerce and Policy from George Mason University and his BA in Government and Philosophy from Lawrence University. Ben, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's great to have you on. So, Ben, we frame each of our episodes around a question and go where the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, how do we bridge divides? And I think before we jump right to answering that specifically, let's talk about what current attitudes are around ideas and really what these divides are that we're we're talking about, because I think that's very important. So the first one I want to throw at you is, how do you assess current social trends when it comes to discourse on issues? Uh, I've seen you written about you've written about this and touched on it, but I, I want to elaborate on here. Do you agree we're pro- having problems with different trends of e- illiberal attitudes when it comes to exchanging ideas and things like that? Mm-hmm. I do. I think that we are having a very, very difficult time in talking to one another in, in this country. And if you look across the board, um, a lot of data indicates that we are quite uh, polarized. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating um, is uh, found in Robert Talese's book, Overdoing Democracy. And in that book, he says that negative attitudes towards um, interparty marriages is way, way, way higher than interracial, interfaith and other other combinations of things and we it gives us an insight into how polarized we are it's primarily along the political lines um uh, the blue uh, if if you if you wear a, a blue jersey um you don't agree with anything that those uh, wearing the red jerseys say if you're wearing a red jersey um you don't agree with anything that those uh wearing blue say and uh another scholar kevin valier um has looked mm at data um, across Western democracies. And he notices that within the U.S. in particular, um, there is a a very steep decline in social trust over the past decade. So we are polarized along political lines and we have a very, very difficult time trusting one another. Um, And so, you know, that I think is really, really uh, important, gives us a sense of uh, the, the kinds of divisions that we are experiencing. And so you see that in, in civil discourse uh, or the lack thereof, right. um, where, uh, you know, uh, things like uh, canceling and trolling and deplatforming and silencing and, and, and all these things are emerging um, because we are just having a really, really hard time talking to one another. Right. And, and as you said, right, it, it'd be one thing if there was just people having a hard time talking to one another, but it seems to be exacerbated by the fact that 
people are sort of using the the one of the two major parties, especially in the mm-hmm. United States, as sort of a heuristic mm-hmm. of how people organize their not only thoughts on certain issues but impressions of each other, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's almost become a, a lifestyle, right? In in the way that people identify uh, politically, um, it's it's gone to the point where you know you can identify how someone votes by the car that they they drive, you know, whether it's a hybrid or a uh, mm-hmm. or a truck. Or you know where they get their coffee, whether it's Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, um, and so these things have have taken on sort of lifestyles, and um, we've become very very you know tribalistic. Um, it's 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 difficult, and so you know the, the question is how do we how do we break out of that? And that's what we're looking at, and a number of other people are looking at as well. But I think it's a multi-generational problem and it's going to take a very very long time to to solve this problem yeah absolutely and and generally speaking what would we talked a bit about the illiberal attitudes in a certain way right now so what would you define as a more liberal mentality when it comes to ideas and the exchange of ideas in society that is to say we'll get into some specific ideas about outreach and bridging divides in a second but just at a high at a high level when when you think of the idea of a liberal exchange or or or, or a sort of more a liberal attitude towards things like toleration so on and so forth mm-hmm. what what are you thinking you'd like to see more of yeah the my go to word is pluralism um which is you know in the title of the new program that we launched at mercatus uh called uh pluralism and civil exchange and i think pluralism is a notion that we can uh coexist peacefully even amidst very very deep divides and that is sort of my general attitude. You know, in a liberal democracy, we see each other as dignified equals. Uh, as a result, um, we ought to respect one another. And if we're going to respect one another, we have to respect uh, each other's, you know, lifestyles, um, traditions, um, ways in which we, we think, our viewpoints. We may not agree, but um, we, can, we can recognize one's uh, dignity uh, in, in having various different opinions and i think that's that's the way that i i I see it i think it's really important for us to to be that way right and i I actually have a a quote from you here from one of your essays i just want to throw it out there and we could talk about a bit more perhaps but so on the kind of note that you're talking about when it comes to pluralism and what you mean by that you also say our fellow citizens have the right to dissent and disagree with the trends they see even if the majority believes these trends indicate progress. So this is one of those things that sounds like an obvious point. And if, you know, you and I say to each other, might be like, yeah, of course. But, but it seems that this is one of those, you know, tried and true things that does need to be repeated. That is to say that it's not all about progress, quote unquote, or, or, you know, conserving something, for example, one way or another, the fact that it's actually telling people it's okay. If we, if we disagree, that seems to be an interesting task unto itself these days. Yeah. And, you know, I, I picked that up from uh, John Inaz's book, Confident Pluralism. And in that book, John says, uh, you know, pluralism has two important uh, premises. Uh, the first is inclusion. And I think as society becomes more and more morally enlightened, uh, we include more and more people who may have been considered as marginalized in our society. Right. So, you know, the the founding of America, you know, obviously uh, blacks couldn't vote, women couldn't vote. Um, over time, we have included more and more within our broader political community. 
that's inclusion. That's important for a pluralistic society, especially for a liberal democracy. But there's another premise, which is dissent. And while we will achieve so much of what one might call progress and more inclusion, uh, there will be people in society who will disagree with the trends, who will disagree with um, the way that the majority um, view things. And as a result, we have to allow them to also form their voluntary groups and associations and and have their practices, so long as it harms no one. I think that's a really, really important um, distinction. And so, you know, a, a truly pluralistic society has to have these two things, inclusion and dissent. And it, it does not mean that it's going to be easy. Uh, it does not mean that we're going to solve all of the problems that we have, that we're going to agree on everything. But there has to be a certain level of respect and accommodation and mutual forbearance for for one another. Um, otherwise, this this doesn't work. Right. No, absolutely. It's, it seems to, you know, all that seems to fold in nicely to a, a general point about, you know, toleration. It's, it's tried and true, but just, you know, maybe it's all, always worth repeating to people, it seems, that just because you might tolerate something or live with it or see another group or person that you disagree with doesn't mean you necessarily have to accept it, right, by just tolerating it. That's another one of those tried and true, I think, that you seem to be passionate about that still does need to be repeated. Exactly. And and beyond toleration, you know, Johnny Nazi talks about uh, humility, right, and, mm. and patience. Um, the, the humility in that, you know, people will not always agree with you, will not see the, the logic of your argument, um, and, and the patience in allowing people a time, you know, to, um, to, to accommodate or not. Um, but there are these, he calls them civic aspirations, right? It's, it's tolerance, it's humility, and it's, it's patience for, for one another. That's how we get to, you know, confident pluralism, uh, confidence in our own viewpoints and the way we think. And we ought to be confident about that if we're going to live in a liberal democracy. Um, but at the same time, be, be tolerant of those who just don't share and don't view the world um, in the ways that that we do. So that's that's a really, really important uh, distinction. And I, I should mention one other thing. I think when we talk about, um, you know, liberalism more broadly, and, and you know, Emily, Dr. Emily Chamley Wright has written about this. She's the president of the Institute for Humane Studies. She talks about the, the four corners of liberalism. And I think of them as sort of the four attributes. Um, there is the economic liberalism, allowing one another to pursue our entrepreneurial interest, uh, to, to pursue innovations, to, to have a go um, within the economy. Um, there is political liberalism, which is the stuff of the Constitution um, and our ability to participate in the, the political process. That's, that's very, very important. And that also provides all kinds of legal rights within society. And then there is uh, cultural liberalism, right? The freedom to practice our traditions and beliefs, our, our faiths, uh, the way that we, we see fit. That is um, incredibly important. And then there is epistemic liberalism. It's the, sort of the freedom to think in the way that we, we want, the freedom to express those views. And that's why the First Amendment is incredibly important. And if you combine these four things, uh, you have a more robust, liberal, and pluralistic society because we can truly recognize one another as 
each other's dignified equals and have the opportunity to participate in this broader um, society. Right. And and especially on that point about the epistemic liberalism, you know, some, someone might flippantly say to us, well, you know, even if someone's freaking out about a trend or something, you can go over there and, and think what you want. But obviously, for, from a broader perspective, you know, mm-hmm. your, your point is absolutely true, which is that if there's no sort of framework or sort of tone around our social uh, institutions and also our social trends that creates a situation where someone's comfortable actually, you know, thinking in their own way or at least thinking through a problem. How are they going to have that sort of liberal feeling when it comes to the, that epistemic side of the equation? Right? You can't you can't just say, "Oh, we'll go over there and think what you want." There has to be forum or forums to actually do that, right? Exactly, exactly. And um, you know, again, it, it goes back to humility um, and that we are all humble in in the views that that we that we hold not that we're not confident about them uh, not that we don't you know think that they they hold a certain level of of truth um but that not everyone will agree with us and i mm-hmm. think that's that's okay uh, one of the things that you know it's it's if you read uh danielle allen who wrote the book uh talking to strangers uh, she talks about you know the, the sort of e pluribus unum uh, concept especially in america you know unity and diversity um which gives people the impression that we are all supposed to be united about everything. And that's, that's an elusive uh, quest really, right? Because we don't even agree on, um, you know, what human flourishing is, you know, what's the purpose of, 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 of the nation and all these, these big questions, we don't all agree on that. So we cannot have um, this ideal sense of unity, but there's something that we can shoot for. And that's a modest unity. Uh, we can we can shoot for, you know, the processes by which we adjudicate matters, um, the civility with which we we engage with one another, um, uh, are the robustness of the participation of people within a a, a democracy, and and things like that. Things that allow us to actually go through the processes of having conversations and dialogue uh, without leading to to major conflicts. I think that's sort of a modest unity that we can we can target, but not this sort of idealistic sense of of unity where we we agree on everything. Right. No, and I, I like that point a lot, and especially you know that you're right. That does all come back to that point about the humility that you mentioned. I think, and and you you tell me if you uh, you agree, uh, especially when it comes to the theme of the, the bridging divides and so on and so forth. You know, uh, you know, part of the humility part of the discussion isn't just what you were saying as well. It's also the fact that hey, like you know, not only do we have to be tolerant and so on and so forth, but sometimes people often seem to think that if there is a disagreement, it must be something on the other side of the table that is causing all of the problem. Not that there isn't any problem on the other side of the table, but that it's 100% there. Whereas in reality, I guess part of the humility equation, especially in your view, would be that you know you also have to do a bit of introspection too on your own view. It can't always be the correct mm-hmm. one. Yeah. And, you know, going back to Robert Talese again, he does a lot of good work on belief polarization. Uh, that uh, one of the aspects of that is that we, when you spend a lot of time with people who agree with you, um, mm. you actually end up uh, holding the most extreme versions of your original views. Mm. And we have all been polarized to a certain extent. Uh, the ways in which that we think about people who have alternative views from ours is shaped by the community, the epistemic communities within which we, we reside. Um, as a result, uh, in order to have any robust civil discourse, we have to actually 
do a lot of introspection. Think about ways in which we ourselves may have been polarized by the epistemic communities within which we, we reside. Mm-hmm. And so there, there has to be a lot of introspection there as well. Um, and I, I think that's a really good point from um, Robert Talese. Right. And actually touching on something that you, you just mentioned there about the sort of communities we, we surround ourselves with and the people that we most often find ourselves with. Um, you've noted, I've seen in a, in a talk you've done quickly, but also in an essay you covered as well that, you know, especially today, our modern social and economic trends make it so we, we often find ourselves associating and dealing with people who have very similar opinions and outlooks as us, whether whether it's because, um, you know, we can, we can do so online, for example, and find that same group that thinks about, you know, one thing or the other a certain way, or it's just because in life we don't seem to have put in front of us too many contradictory opinions in some environments. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll follow that up with, with a quote here. You say, well, we celebrate the freedoms and choices individuals make, to associate with whomever they desire, these trends have contributed to limiting opportunities to encounter and communicate with people who have very different experiences and beliefs. So I just want to give you a bit of a chance to explore more of your thoughts on that and elaborate on that part of it, because I think it's very key to what we're talking about here today, too. Sure. Um, it's it's interesting. I, I my uh, The economist Tyler Cowen, who is my, my boss, um, <laughs> he wrote a book called The Complacent Class. And uh, in a, a part of that book, he talks about how technologies have helped us to match each other. So we have apps that allow us to, you know, date people who are very similar to us, uh, to, to move to places that we like with people who are very similar to the way that we, we view the world. Um, as a result, we've gotten, actually, we've become very, very uh, segregated. And we're losing the ability to really engage with people who have very, very different views. Um, one of the projects that I, I lead up at Mercatus is called the Pluralist Lab. And in, in that, we, we recently had an event with a, a, a group of students who see things very, very differently. We had some conservatives, we had some uh, progressives, we had some socialists, and we had some, uh, you know, market-oriented, you know, libertarians. Um, and it was interesting because some of those students had never interacted with people with such views, mm-hmm. right? Such diverse views. And it, it was a healthy experience because then you get to see the other person as as human, just as you. And in some fundamental ways, they care about similar things like human flourishing even though they may disagree on how to get there, right? And so I think that's part of the problem we're, we're having is that we have uh, trended towards um, moving and living in places and occupying virtual spaces with people who mm-hmm. share very, very, very similar ideas and views who are from similar backgrounds. And as a result, that practical um, experience you know, it used to be that, you know, your neighbors, you would play around with them and hang out with them and your uncle down the street will have very, very different views. But but you're kind of, you know, forced to engage them, you know, in a way that's that's healthy and it gives you a sense of um, a resilient ability to to talk to someone who uh, is very, very different from you. Absolutely. And I think that's that's a big that's a big challenge. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And like, you know, we talked a bit about like, you know, social and economic trends and, you know, how people find themselves. But it even seems as you're talking about with with dating apps, for example, or even just like the way people discuss things online in virtual spaces, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of online space specifically that, that I've, you know, grown up with, with as well. It seems that a lot of it has transformed not to just naturally sorting people, but now you're encouraged to actively seek these spaces mm-hmm. where only certain people think the same way. So that, that's very troubling too, in my opinion, that it's not just we naturally end up sorting ourselves, but you're almost encouraged to sort of only stay over here or seek these types of people out and so on. Yeah, yeah. And in, you know, in some ways it's not, it's not our fault, right? We, we like what we like mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's, it's we're, we're likely to gravitate towards places and spaces that make us very, very comfortable. Um, so that's, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to, to that. Um, I just think that we have to now learn how to have civil discourse again. And not that there used to be some ideal moment in history right, where right. this was perfect, but um, as society is, is being transformed by technologies and, and, and things like that, uh, we also have to, you know, learn uh, how to engage in this different environment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just to clarify my point, too. I'm, not, I'm certainly not yeah. saying it's a, it's, it's a bad sure. thing these spaces exist because it is, mm-hmm. there's definitely times and places for dedicated mm-hmm. spaces for like-minded people and so on and so forth. But, but I agree with you. It seems like moderation, right? There needs to be something on the other side as well. It can't all be like-minded spaces, of course. And That's right. And, um, you, you know, I, I like a point you made as well there too, this idea that just the, the simple act of interacting with those that might think differently than you on a political issue or even like a smaller issue, like think of a work dispute or something. If you just don't, you know, someone finds themselves not very favorable of a coworker or something like actually interacting with that person, having a forum to do so mm-hmm. sort of gets rid of this idea that they're the, this caricature opponent of evil or something, right? Like you must've seen that with your experience with those students where yeah. even if they disagree, at least that human element and connection is very important, right? Exactly. And, you know, there's a scholar at UC Berkeley, uh, Juliana Schroeder, who's a psychologist. And, you know, she does the psychology of interactions. And one of the things that she looks at is how likely it is uh, for uh, people to form friendships and relationships when they are placed within very close proximity over a given period of time. And, you know, it is the reason why your dorm mates uh, in college, you know, you, you, you still be close friends with them to this day because you were placed in, in close proximity and it, it fostered this environment where you, you learned about each other and built these relationships. Um, she's done a lot of work with um, this organization called Seeds for Peace that brings Israeli and Palestinian youth uh, to the U.S. for a couple of weeks uh, to be involved in certain workshops. And, and throughout, they've learned that it works there too. Even with people with very, very deep uh, differences and divides, when they come together in close proximity and they learn about sort of the humanity of each other, it's, it's very, very easy for them to form relationships. So um, we, we got to figure out a way to you know, do, do some of that. I don't know how practical it can be, um, but that's, you know, part of the effort that we're, we're trying to engage in with the pluralist lab. Right. And we're actually just about, about at the time we could take a break. So before I jump into a different sort of gear, we'll, we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Ben Klutze today.
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind about the show to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Scott Scheel, Travis Smith, and Vincent Geloso. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Ben Clutze today. So Ben, I think the first half was great. We, we talked a lot about what kind of divides are out there and what might be causing them. I, I do want to get into talking about some specific tactics you think are useful um, in terms of getting ideas out there and, and bridging those divides specifically as per our theme today. But but before I get right to that, one gear I want to shift into is talking about, and it's going back to a point you actually already touched on, which is this idea of distrust. Now, there's a lot of folks out there um, and and I and I would agree with them in many cases actually too where you know they say there is a balance here too right you know and I'll bring in a quote from you again in your essay to, to make the point I I want you to talk about which is you say while a good dose of distrust of politicians is healthy a deep distrust and hatred of each other can erode the effective functioning of our democracy and can diminish our ability to maintain healthy and pluralistic society so I think we talked about the last part of that sentence pretty well in the first half but i want to go back to that first part which is how does one strike the balance of this healthy distrust that people like you and i would probably encourage people to have about authority and perhaps about political opponents we think might be thinking things that for instance are authoritarian or or whatever the case may be how do we basically say okay let's have that healthy distrust what does that actually look like yeah i mean i think a healthy distrust looks like um, being able to you know, critique a a politician and the uh, policies that they are putting forward and asking whether this actually works, whether this generates human flourishing and uh, or the institutions that um, are, you know, the pillars of our society, like the media, for instance, and when they put out information that um, skews one way or another, I think it's healthy for us to question those things and, mm. and ask if they're actually getting to the facts or not. We've seen a number of examples of these uh, fairly recently. I think I think those things are healthy and they help to keep our institutions honest to a certain extent. I think that what's unhealthy is when we make every single discourse, every single problem an existential crisis. Right. And so I think that the uh, politicians have whipped everyone into a frenzy when it's, again, going back to Team A and Team Blue, that that other person is going to destroy society by this idea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they generate a lot of fear and people get very, very, very worried about what that might do for their lives and their children's lives. And that's not to say that sometimes policies don't have substantial implications for our individual freedoms and security and, and things like that. But there, there's a point at which this becomes excessive. And that's that's why um, I think we are where we are, where we cannot tolerate another person, you know, being in office because we think that they're a threat to our lives. I think we have to step back from that and continue to provide healthy critique. Because I think that... Um, diminishes our ability to then participate in in the political process in a very healthy way, right? In the way that we might protest or, you know, form our voluntary groups and and um, do these things that are all legitimate parts of our 
democratic system and how we bring about change. But not every question, not every issue on the table is an existential crisis. And I think we have to, we have to step away from that. It will, it will lead to a much healthier um, system. Right. No, no, exactly. I mean, a perfect example of that is like even the discussion on maybe a tax percentage going up or down a couple points somehow gets a couple of dots connected. And all of a sudden you're talking about words like either fascism or socialism, mm-hmm. or, you're, or you're talking about someone's destroying a way of life or something when in reality, exactly. again, how, how do we get there from a discussion on what could have mm-hmm. ultimately been a disagreement on some sort of fiscal mm-hmm. policy, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, um, uh, part of it is, uh, you know, some understanding of, of what these policies mean, what these things do. Um, but we all have to do our part in, in not in, in kind of uh, lowering, lowering the temperature a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we've been talking about a lot of ideas in general and, and how diversity of ideas is good. We've also talked about where some of these divides come from that we're talking about today. Um, you know, as we are in the second half of our conversation here, I sort of want to get a, a, a little more specific because firstly, mm-hmm. I want to say, you know, all the concepts you talk about are very important and obviously form the foundation for a lot of the things you work on and a, a lot of the things you think about. But this isn't just about what you're passionate about, I should say, isn't just about having this pluralism and, and having this diversity passively. You also think that actively bridging divides is just important to you. So why don't you talk a bit about that? Because again, it's one thing to say we have toleration, pluralism, and can disagree, mm-hmm. but you actually think there's merit in putting ourselves in different situations and actively diversifying what we see out there in terms of the difference of opinion. Exactly. Because I think that we have to learn the practice of engaging with, with one another because um, we're losing that that practice over time as we are continuing to engage with people who are very, very similar to us. And um, I, I think it's possible, and you've seen uh, a, a plethora of organizations emerging uh, to help us do this these things, right? Living Room Conversations, Braver Angels, uh, Listen First, and, and a number of them. And um, I, I think it's I think it's really really important. We we have to step step back. Um, in 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 this book by Adam Grant called Think Again, uh, he, he he uses an example that I think is very very uh, important here. Uh, he says that oftentimes when we are uh, faced with um, uh, confrontations or challenges to our uh, beliefs that are very very core to who we are, we become either preachers. Uh, prosecutors or politicians. Mm. And, you know, a preacher is someone who's, who has a very unyielding level of faith. And so their goal is to proselytize and, and get everyone to see uh, things the way that they, they do. Um, a politician uh, will say anything to get people on their, on their side. And, and a prosecutor will seek to uh, exploit the weaknesses in the other person's arguments to make theirs look really, really good. And I think that we all um, are a preacher, prosecutor, or politician at some points in our lives. And I say that, you know, if, if for me, you know, if we're talking about Gladiator, I'm all these three things because that's my favorite movie of all time. Hmm. And so I think it's the best. Um, but, you know, we have to step back. And Adam Grant talks about sort of the fourth thing, which is sort of having the scientist mentality. But we're asking a lot of questions. Right, we we have a sense of of fallibility, which um, Jonathan Rausch talks about in his book, The Constitution of Knowledge, as well. That mm-hmm. we have to have a sense of um, uh, fallibility that we may not always have the last word on something, 
right? We could right. be wrong. We could be wrong on that thing that we, we firmly believe. And, and so we have to maintain that and keep asking questions. Um, but the really important metaphor that um, Adam Grant uses is, is the dance metaphor. And he says that, look, when we're engaged in any interaction, we shouldn't think about it as a war or a battle or a competition, but we should think of it as a dance, right? Where we, we sometimes step back and we allow someone to, to say something and we listen and we will, we'll chime in. And sometimes we sidestep and sometimes we give this a little bit of time and then we revisit the thing that we're talking about. Um, I, I think that's a very, very important process. And Adam Grant says that, look, he, he, he's, he's, he's almost like a logician where when you confront him with a question or challenge him on something, he's thinking about ways in which he can, he can take it apart. And he was once in, engaged in a conversation with uh, someone and he was trying to help them think through something. And the person said, I see what you're saying, but I still don't agree. I still don't want to yield. Um, and, and he asked why. And she said, because you are a logic bully. And he was excited about that for a few seconds because he thought, yes, I'm really good at logic. And he means I'm winning all the time. But he realized that he wasn't really um, convincing anybody. He wasn't really, you know, drawing, creating a sense of openness about his ideas and so on. And, and, and so that's when he started thinking about this dance metaphor, because it's not about winning arguments and battles but creating a sense of openness for people to actually interact freely. Um, and, and I think that's really important. I, I think of that a lot as a, um, in some ways, a tactic for how we can engage with one another in a, in a peaceful society, because otherwise we always have this warlike attitude um, with, with ideas. And so, so yeah, that's, that's one important point that I'll make on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, you said this word earlier, I think it's really a good one. You say the, the practice of this, right? Like, and this is something people need to practice. I think, you know, and, and no, nobody's perfect. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that even myself, I do this every day and I stop and think about it because back to everything we were talking about before, right? The way we sort ourselves into groups, whether it's in our intellectual circles, literally every day or in our virtual spaces, everything, you sort of get conditioned that when you're going to speak to someone outside of that or present a point of view, the, the thing, as you said, is, it's either war or like, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a, it's a marketing project to get someone to believe something. It's a one way street. Whereas in reality, I think even before we, we, um, have a conversation with people, we should all be in agreement. I hope that there's value in that, the act itself, regardless of where it goes, right. That the exchange itself, I think is what, before we even get to talking about things on their, on their own merit, I think the exchange itself needs to be valued. Exactly. I think that's why, you know, a lot of research shows, including research done by my colleague Virgil Store and, and another one, Najini Choi, in your book, um, Do Markets Corrupt the Morality? And, and in the book, they find that, look, when people are exchanging, right, they're engaged in voluntary cooperative exchanges in society in, in the way that you would in markets. Um, there is a lot of cooperation. Um, people see the humanity in others. Um, they they think of one another as as dignified equals, and that leads makes for a more um, 
pluralistic uh, society and, and, and a society where there's there's a lot more more civility. So that exchange is important and that has to take place and with you know different people with with diverse viewpoints and diverse backgrounds it's it's incredibly important. Yeah, absolutely. And th- this is sort of a question I think that could be a- approached from different angles, but I think has value for people that may be students listening or even other academics who are thinking of, you know, the exchange of ideas more generally. Just anybody in- interested, I guess, in the- this question of education overall in the, in the broadest mm-hmm. sense. Let me ask you, in your experience, what do you think are some of the most effective ways that actually you know, allow us to do everything we've been talking about in this conversation. In, in your like most tactical, practical experience, is it just getting people in a room and having them talk about it? Do you think it's the seminar format? I just thought to ask you, like, at a very practical level, what have you seen that's number one brought brought you a lot of joy and enjoyment, but number two that you actually think is is, is very effective at, at many of the things we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think at the very practical level, it's it's really bringing people together, um, and you know not not being afraid to engage i mean we know that across the board uh, there's data that shows that uh, uh, college students are self-censoring um they're worried about what their friends might say and what their friends might might do um and 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 how they might portray them on, on social media um they just want to belong and so you know we know that there's a huge concern um and and the way that i would encourage people to uh to practice this is to 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 um to to learn to make friends right i mean john and calls it civic civic friendships um robert talese uh, has a technique that i think is very helpful he says that we have to um find ways to do things with our fellow uh, citizens that have nothing to do with our politics Right. So whether it's volunteering with someone at the public library to teach someone how to read, um, that possibly uh, it, it could it could real, reveal some politics. But ultimately, I think there's sort of a feel good approach to that in a way that doesn't re- reveal anybody's um, politics. Right. There, there are a number of things that we have to think about doing with each other that that, you know, politics does not even become a question. Because uh, to a certain extent, I think part of the problem we're experiencing is that we're in a very, very hyper political environment. Um, And if we can do things that would reveal that we're all human and that we're all fallible, um, we we love, we have emotions, uh, I think that um, takes away a lot of the angst. Uh, It it lowers the temperature uh, substantially. Um, I think professors um, in classrooms are are thinking of a number of ways to to foster viewpoint diversity. We're working with with some of the scholars um, who are who are looking at these things, um, but there there are some practical ways to do this, and I think we should all we should all um, try to engage. But at, at sort of the the um, citizens level, I think finding ways to connect with people, you know, neighbors, friends, um, on things that have nothing to do with politics, I think is very, very important. Um, you know, th- there is uh, there are people who are now um, hosting um, random people, you know, in their homes, but uh, with mm-hmm. food, right? I mean, they, they want to break bread and have conversations. And um, for some of these things, 
the rule is that for the first 30 minutes, it's a conversation about the food and where it comes from, why, why it means mm. something to you. It's very cool. Uh, yeah. Before any, anything about politics gets in, in, into it. So you learn about somebody first, you get to experience their humanity, who they are um, before you even engage on the sort of the, some of the deep questions that we're experiencing in society. I think that takes us a long way there. Right. No, I, I like that point. And especially to it, it ties back to what you're saying before, too, which is this isn't just a passive activity is something that we have to think of actively as well, which I think it is valuable, right? It's not just about, hey, I talked with someone about politics today, and we disagreed, you pat yourself on the back. It's, it's actually yeah. an active practice that we should all be thinking about and getting back to. I, I, yeah. I, I want to also um, just touch on this point real quickly that this will, of course, have been mentioned in your bio before the before the episode actually rolls, but I'll bring it up here again for the for the meat of the episode. So in all the things we talked about, it's, isn't it great that you are uh, the director of the program on pluralism and civil exchange at the Mercatus Center, which is which is a great fit. I'm sure you're you're enjoying that in, in an amazing way, which is awesome. I just wanted mm-hmm. to give the opportunity for for those listening that might not be familiar with this um, this program specifically and the kinds of things it does for you to for you to talk a bit about that and, and what it means to you. Sure. Um, I, the problem that we're seeing in society, and I've talked about some of this already, is the deep device that we're seeing and just how polarized we are in our society. And some of this has to do with uh, questions that we're having a hard time answering in society, whether it's about disparities in, in income, whether it's about the criminal justice system um, and the treatment of, of minorities in the, in the, in the country. Th- there are lots and lots of um, issues that are emerging and we're having a hard time talking about them and, and there are some very sort of illiberal ideas that are emerging as a result of these problems that we're having people, because people have a sense that the current solutions that we have aren't, aren't addressing those problems that we have. Right. So that leads to liberal ideologies, you know, like nationalism or, or socialism or nativism, all these things that want to make us a very, a very parochial um, sort of society. Um, and at the same time, we see these illiberal practices emerging, right? The the inability for us to have civil discourse and to tolerate one another and to contest ideas effectively. Um, and so when we think about whether there is a, a place for a Mercatus to, to play a role, um, our response is, is in the affirmative. Because Mercatus is a place where we like to advance ideas for a free society. Uh, we're producing research um, that advances ideas for free society. We're engaging students in classical political economy that um, that you know um, help on sort of advancing ideas for a free society. And so, if the environment within which we occupy, where ideas are exchanged, are reoriented towards conflict, very very deep conflict, it's going to be very very hard for us to advance any ideas and for us to have any discourse. We think that's very, very important in a a very peaceful liberal democracy. We ought to be able to challenge one another and contest ideas peacefully. So that's why this program was established. And it's doing two things. On the one hand, we want to bring together uh, visiting fellows, scholars, doers, practitioners who are thinking a lot about how we can um, have a more pluralistic society. What are the current trends we're seeing? What are some of the causes of the deep device that we're seeing in society. That's on the one hand. And we are hopeful that these scholars will 
uh, identify uh, uh, problems that they will try to solve and make an impact in society. On the other hand, we're doing this thing called the Pluralist Lab that I mentioned. And the goal is for us to sort of model the kind of discourse that we want to see. And we want to give people the tools to engage with one another. And I'm hopeful that at the end of the day, we'll have a, you know people coming through these uh, programs and believing that they have the tools to go out there and, and to interact with others very, very peacefully. Now you asked about what, how this, or why this means so much to me. I, I grew up in, in Ghana, West Africa, and I grew up at a time when we were in a Marxist socialist regime. We did transition eventually, but people like my father who were entrepreneurs um, were, were harassed for a long time, nearly thrown in jail. Their assets were you know, nearly seized. And we went through a lot, of, a lot of challenges. One of the things that my father used to tell me was that if you walk out of these four walls of our home, do not speak your mind. Do not challenge authority. Uh, do not crit criticize the government because we will lose everything as we had experienced in the past. And so, you know, I, I grew up being very, very cautious, very weary about speaking my mind until I moved to the United States and things changed for me. I became a philosophy major. And in philosophy, you have to contest ideas. You have to challenge one another and debate. And I remember that at the end of my freshman year uh, in my first philosophy course that I take, I pick up my, my paper and I get an A. And at the bottom of it, my professor says, you have a lot of good things to say, say them in class. Hmm. And that began a process for me to begin to engage more in the contestation of ideas. I think that's really important. If we can contest ideas, um, we can get better ideas. Uh, the production of knowledge does not just happen it happens through this very, very robust process of people engaging and debating and contesting and challenging one another. Um, you know, um, Polanyi in his um, Republic of, of, of Science um, talks about, you know, having something that looks like a society of explorers where you have um, investigators and explorers who are looking at different aspects of society and they're asking various questions. And when they find an answer, they can connect it to another explorer who has discovered another um, answer to a, a question. And then they connect the dots. And then from there, they go on to address another question. And overall, society becomes more knowledgeable and we produce better ideas that lead to better innovation and progress and leads to human flourishing. And so a society that um, uh, elevates epistemic liberalism elevates the freedom of speech and freedom of thought is uh, one that will likely generate a lot of progress for, for people. And so, you know, that's why I care so much about this because I think that it's, it's very easy to fall into the trap of conflict upon conflict and um, without stepping back 
and asking yourself, why are we doing this? And whether this is important, why don't we allow people to express their views even though they're unpopular? Um, the economist Timo Koran writes about preference falsification. The notion that people are masking their preferences uh, for fear of social pressure. Mm-hmm. And in a democracy that, that can happen um, because you will find that the majority sometimes will try to silence uh, the minority that may have a certain view that may not be, be popular. Um, it's, not, it's not healthy. So that's that's why I care about this. I, I I've I've lived an experience where people were silenced and and not a, and were meant were supposed to be scared off, you know, sharing their views and challenging orthodoxy, and we we suffered for it, right? We had an economy that plunged more and more into poverty until things began to change. Until we experienced market liberalization, allowing entrepreneurs to go out there and have a go, and um, that generated a lot of prosperity. So that's why I care about this stuff. Right. No, and thank you so much for sharing the personal side of your experience too. I think that means a lot and it provides a lot of color commentary for especially the, uh, the, uh, the, the people listening. And I, and it just occurs to me to ask you as well, like, of course, this isn't to say that, you know, in Canada and the United States, we, we don't have any problems. We've, we've talked about them. We've talked about some of the illiberal trends when it comes to exchange ideas, but, but from someone from your position and, and your background where you you've had the chance to experience almost both extremes, if you will, does it kind of just make you chuckle or laugh when other people don't have a similar background to you when someone throws up their hands in, in one of these countries and says, Oh, you, you can't say anything anymore. They're it's, it's almost <laughs> like you can't do what you want to do. And, and they go on like that. I mean, the fact that people aren't <laughs> knocking on doors and taking people away and that's something you've experienced firsthand. It must make you a little like, cringe a little bit when people, <laughs> you know, there's opportunity here, obviously. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we, we are incredibly fortunate to live in a society where Things like, you know, freedom of speech is sort of enshrined in, in our psyche, right? It's, it's in our ethos. Um, and it's very, very important. And, and so, yes, I do chuckle when, when people throw their arms and, and act as though, you know, everything is over, you know. Um, but I think that's why I care about this in the, in the way that we can, we can guard. We can guard against the, the, the pessimism. But also we can guard against the, the practices that diminish our ability to maintain a robust, you know, freedom of speech ethos. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's very important for us to guard it um, because that's very essential to preserving a liberal democracy that is also pluralistic, that allows uh, people of different backgrounds and viewpoints to also flourish. I think, I think our... Society is a very unique place. Um, it is very, very tested in the area of pluralism because we do have, it's a large, um, it's a large country and there are lots and lots of uh, people from many different parts uh, of, of the world, like belief systems and viewpoints and Canada, the same, same thing. Um, and so we, we're tested more and more, which means we have, always have to rise up to the challenge of fostering and maintaining a, a, a pluralistic society because that's that's where um, human flourishing emerges right and i think that's actually an excellent place for us to move ahead to our formal wrap up here so, so let me say um ben we've talked about a lot 
I'm going to try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on everything. Um, in each episode, I actually want the guest ultimately to have the last word. So let me officially ask you the last question everyone gets asked, which is, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways here for someone listening to you on how we can bridge divides and, and why that's important? In other words, if you wanted someone listening to us here in everything to take away one or two or just a handful of takeaways, what would those ultimately be, if anything? Hmm. Well, I'd say that the way to foster a pluralistic society is not through a top-down approach, right? We cannot enforce this from some kind of a governmental authority or a, a corporate entity or anything like that, but it has to be bottom-up. Um, it's the kinds of things that, you know, Alex, you and I are doing right now, uh, you know, the kinds of things that one might do with your neighbors, right? Engage in, in conversation and dialogue or an act of kindness. Um, they, they can see, you know, who you are. And um, I think that there's a lot that we can do at the local level, at the community levels um, that can bubble up and strengthen the uh, democracy and, and, and sort of the pluralism that, that we all seek. Um, it's not going to be a, a top-down thing. Um, this, uh, the way that we got to where we are right now has taken a very, very long time to, to, to be generated. And, and in order to find ways to address it, it's going to take a very long time. And each and every one of us um, has a role to play in this, in this. So I'd encourage everyone who is listening to think about um, an act of pluralism that they can engage in. And that will certainly involve some interaction, some act of kindness and connecting with people with whom uh, you're not familiar with, with whom you may uh, share some disagreements potentially, but connecting with them anyway. I think that's, that's important. That's where it starts. Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave it. Ben Klutze, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's been a, a pleasure. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.